quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Every month we take a strategic look at our finances, and I think that that has been a defining factor in our decision-making over the last 10 years and our risk factor. Because when you see that the funds are there and they can be invested, I think you're more inclined to take the action. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Slocum Reed, and today I'm here with Emily Courtright and Adam Roberts. Emily and Adam are joining us from Fort Worth, Texas. They are co-owners of A&E Real Estate Group, which syndicates multifamily real estate. Their current portfolio includes $220 million in assets under management with another $60 million that has already gone full cycle. Emily and Adam, can you tell us a little more about your backgrounds and what you're currently focused on? Yes, thank you so much. And we are so honored to be here today. I watched my dad work 30 years and not be able to retire after a career of investing in stocks and mutual funds and doing physical labor in a 30-year career. And it led me to think to myself, I have to do something different. I have to invest differently than the status quo. And when I met Adam, he invited me to an investing class and I met him there and we show up and I find out it's a real estate investing class. And I'm like, what are we doing here? We're not going to invest in real estate. And I am so glad I stayed because that class changed our lives. It showed us the numbers behind real estate investing. It showed us that real estate investing has the potential to provide financial security and financial freedom. And we knew after that night that that was the direction we were going to take. We were both engineers working for GE Aviation in a corporate rat race job. And within a year after that class, I had quit my corporate job. We moved to Texas and I started our real estate investing business. We started with single family flips and rentals, and then we transitioned to large multifamily syndications or group purchases. And that has been an extremely successful business venture for us. Before you moved to Fort Worth, when you were both at GE Aviation, where did you live? We lived in Southern California, Newport Beach. Ah, I was hoping you were going to say Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where I am. And we have a large GE Aviation. They build most of the Boeing engines here, or at least they do the design work here. So Emily was born and raised in Cincinnati, and we both lived and worked there for many years for GE before relocating to California for a few years. Gotcha. That makes sense. I'd like to put some times on these transitions for you all professionally. When was it that you went to the real estate investing course training? When is it that you moved to get into flips and rentals? And then when did you make the transition to commercial multifamily and syndication? 2012 was when we went to the real estate investing class and it was actually in California. And during that class, the instructor mentioned how hot the Texas markets were. So there were seeds planted. The Texas real estate market is booming. So in 2013, we had the opportunity to move to Texas. Adam found a full-time job in aviation in Fort Worth. 
And 2013 was when I left my corporate job 10 years ago to start real estate investing. We did single family exclusively for the next four years. And then in 2017, we realized single family was getting to be a little bit of a grind because I was self-managing my rentals. I was being the GC on all my flips. And we wanted Adam to join us full-time in the real estate business, but single family wasn't getting us there with the strategies we were using. So we went to another training class for multifamily in 2017, where another light bulb went off and our minds were blown again about the income potential. And within a year after that, 2018, Adam left his job and joined me full-time. And we've been working together in our business for the last five years. Gotcha. Do you still own some of those single families? We have one single family rental left. So we sold everything else off to fund our multifamily business. I have a question about that because I know that there are a variety of answers to this question for people who go from other typically smaller rentals into multifamily. So when you sold your portfolio of single families to fund your transition into larger deals, multifamily syndication. What is it that you were funding? For us, we knew when we got into multifamily, we wanted to be active investors. We wanted to be the deal makers, the deal sponsors. So we needed a a high amount of liquidity for earnest money deposit to get the deal started prior to investors. And as well today, more than ever, that liquidity helps to hedge risk in the marketplace. So balance sheet health, being able to fund deals if we absolutely needed to, things like that. And specifically, each deal we've invested at least $100,000 in. So we've done eight deals so far. And like Adam said, the earnest money in multifamily was so much more than in the single family world. In multifamily, the earnest money could be $300,000, $500,000, up to a million dollars. So we would need to bring all or a portion of that So we had to grow our liquidity to be able to be competitive deal sponsors in the Dallas-Fort Worth market. Gotcha. But you're also taking LP positions in your own deals. Correct. Yeah. That hundred thousand minimum that we invest in our own deals, that is a LP, a limited partner position. And is that in addition to the earnest deposit that you're putting down or are you taking part of that deposit and rolling it into an LP position and getting back the rest of your deposit? Exactly that. We'll get back some of our deposit. We'll leave the remaining in as an investment, an LP position. That makes a lot of sense. And the reason why I'm asking the question is the way that I'm asking them, Emily and Adam, is that I know a lot of syndicators who sell their owner-operated rental portfolio for the sake of liquidity. That liquidity, however, remains as reserves and money for them to live on while they get their first few deals. They don't necessarily use it to take LP positions in their own deals or anyone else's deals. It sounds like you're using it for both. We are. And we took somewhat of a conservative path. We had some good income coming in while I still had a W-2 job to make sure that we could pay the bills and things of that nature. When we got our first large multifamily syndication acquisition finished. That brought in quite a bit more income. I was able to leave my job. Still, it wasn't like a one-for-one on expenses, but I knew that by joining her full-time, I could focus a lot more. We could get our second acquisition done, things of that nature. So to your point, yes, it was both. 
I have so many questions about this for the record, because I'm one of those investors who still owner operates a portfolio and has a lot yeah. of my net worth tied up in equity and properties. And so that's where these questions are coming from for the record. I also have friends who have not necessarily burned the ships, but definitely sold them in order to put capital in the bank that they could use to transition to a more syndication style of investing. So it sounds like you're not only creating a personal buffer for yourselves financially, but also creating those liquid reserves that would make it more possible to take swings on larger properties while putting down earnest deposits, taking those LP positions and also having money in the bank in the event. Well, let me ask actually eight deals, two of them full cycle, six of them still under management Correct. out of those deals thus far. And the capital that you set aside for doing these deals, how many times have you had to deploy your capital after acquisition when something didn't go as planned? We haven't had to do that yet. At all? At all. No. So far, the deals have been self-funding, no issues. But to your point, in this type of economy, the deal sponsors are responsible for keeping some liquidity just in case. Do you all co-GP with other people on these deals? How big is your team? We do. There's one other couple that we work with. So we're two couples partnership. Within those two couples, four people, specific to Adam and Emily, what are your primary responsibilities? So my role on the team is acquisitions, building our investor database. So I'm out teaching classes on passive investing, working with the brokers to analyze deals and get deal flow. Adam is more of the operations side. So once we own the property, Adam is working with the property management company. He's helping implement the business plan, more of the front end operations. Asking about both acquisitions and operations. We're in Q2 of 2023 as we record. With both of those things, how is it that you all are experiencing the market of the moment? Interest rates and the thing everyone is saying is that sellers and buyers are just not meeting on expectations and there's not as much inventory out there when it comes to acquisitions. Also, operationally speaking, both revenue and expenses have been fairly volatile the last couple of years. It's good to hear you say you haven't needed any of your capital. It's also a little bit surprising. I know a lot of syndicators who have had to dig into their own personal war chests here recently with some of the volatility we've seen, particular to revenue and expenses, while even operating well. So the market of the moment in acquisitions and operations, what are you guys feeling? So in acquisitions, I do see a similar gap between what sellers want and buyers can pay. We're offering on a property tomorrow, putting in an LOI. It's a $42 million list price, and I'm going to offer around $38 million. So it's about a 10% reduction in what I can offer versus what they want. And we'll see where that goes. But this property is already at a discount from what you could have bought it for a year and a half, two years ago. So it's amazing that we are starting to see some price per doors come down, very attractive price per doors for the asset class compared to the past year and a half. But there is still that gap because of the interest rates and the loan terms. So that's exactly what we're seeing in the real-time market. 
If I yeah. can ask a follow-up there before we switch topics, Emily, list price of 42, offer price of 38. Where is the guidance from the broker on this? Are you expecting to have a chance at this one? I'm not sure because the guidance from the broker is at 42 million and 38 is what we can pay. It's what provides a cash flow for the investors. And we're working with the broker's lender, the in-house lender for the broker. So we found that that would hopefully give us a heads up with the offer. So I will have to follow up with you and let you know if, if we make it to the best and final. Of course, you should be making the offers that actually work with your underwriting, that deliver the returns necessary for your business plan. It just seems like a lot of people have been writing those offers and not coming anywhere close to what other people are willing to write still. And that's the reason why I ask transitioning Adam operationally, what are you guys seeing right now? For us, you're really spot on. Everything's been volatile. And I would add to the P&L volatility, just resident profile volatility, if we can call it that. Tell us about that. It really started over the holidays, I feel. And usually most holiday seasons are a little choppy from a leasing and eviction and past due payment standpoint. But for us anyway, and a lot of my colleagues, that holiday hangover extended well into February and March. And we're just starting to come around the corner there. But for us, we're seeing a definite shift in apartment demand in Dallas-Fort Worth. It's not catastrophic. We're not talking about losing 20 percentage points of occupancy necessarily, but there's definitely been a shift. An apartment community that might lease at 98, 99% occupancy routinely is now down into the lower 90s. And a lot of us operators are still scratching our heads a bit saying, where's everybody going? And I think at the end of the day, we have reached a breaking point on rents and apartment demand, and we're seeing a little bit of a reset in the marketplace. Are you pivoting in your operating plan to get back to 99% occupancy? Or are you deciding to remain content in the low 90s? Are you reducing rent to get higher occupancy? Are you creating other tenant incentives? Or are you just going to take higher vacancy with the rents and incentives currently in place for tenants? Yeah, we definitely took a tactical approach to occupancy early on during the holiday period. And we handled it like we would any other holiday period where we were offering some rent specials here and there, depending on the community. But that's more or less gone away. We are starting to feel things heat back up a little bit here in Dallas-Fort Worth. And we are relying on some other outside-of-the-box thinking. For example, we have a property in Houston where we elected to take six units on a 300 unit property and hand them over to a Airbnb short-term lease partner of ours. They fully furnish the units. They do their own marketing. So for us, that's instant occupancy because we sign a lease with the vendor and they're actually seeing very good occupancy rates on their end as well on a short-term rental basis. So we're doing little things there too, just to take advantage of whatever the market's giving us at that point in time. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR 
with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital's never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. Are you a real estate investor looking to break into the multifamily investing space? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 12th through the 14th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from over 60 high-level apartment investors while networking with more than 700 additional investors. If that's not enough for you, A-Rod, yep, Alex Rodriguez. 12-time Major League Baseball All-Star with over $700 million of commercial real estate assets. We'll be live and in person speaking at the event. Also speaking is the one and only Dr. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence and the award-winning author. I personally love his books. So be sure to secure your tickets to this live in-person event before they're gone. Go to MFINCON.com for more details. Sponsorship opportunities are also available. Visit MFINCON.com today. Use the promo code BESTEVER to get $200 off. Off your tickets. That's MFINCON.com. Have you taken actions or made changes to your plan that have led to concrete results already? Yes. Beyond that, we've also been implementing some additional amenities at properties that we may not have based on the performance of other parts of our portfolio. For example, we have some nicer properties where we have installed smart technology, keyless entry, smart thermostats, motion sensors things of that nature, video doorbells. And we said, hey, you know what? People in the A-class communities are paying for this. What about the C-class communities? Can we get some demand there? And we actually are. We elected to install that technology on 1960s construction recently. And I've got tenants paying $50 a unit for those amenities. So to your point, occupancy may be taking a little bit of a hit early this year. But we've still seen very positive trends in our financials because of some of those amenities and business decisions we've made. Adam, adding an amenity to increase revenue and increase NOI at the end of the day, is that the result of demographic or generational transition, do you think? Is it something that you expect will be ubiquitously applicable in C-class rentals? I think you have to be very careful with the household income level. So for us, we tend to not take too many risks from that standpoint. We picked a property that was C-class through and through. However, the area is very healthy, good schools, good jobs. We haven't looked at it in a couple of years, but the median household income is probably approaching mid-60s, $70,000 a door. So those folks can definitely afford it. Would I take it to a lower income neighborhood? Probably not. But At the same time, different dynamic in that neighborhood. I may not be dealing with an occupancy issue there. I may not be raising rents as much. That makes a lot of sense. Part of my portfolio is in neighborhoods where you just can't push rents for anything. So our operational focus is how can we deliver a quality place to live as affordably as possible so that we can keep rent low where the demand is for the area and still deliver a quality product with an NOI. So I totally get where you're coming from there. Coming back to some of the comments 
that I made earlier for our listeners, one of which I will say is named Slocum, who has not decided to sell the owner-operator portfolio of smaller properties yet, who's considering doing so to springboard a larger property syndication style portfolio. What is the top tips for getting started, making sure you're starting on the right foot? For us personally, we sold off our portfolio little by little. And it was basically as tenants moved out, we would fix up the unit to be sale ready and resell. I will say that's a fairly single family specific strategy though, isn't it? Because depending on the neighborhood, depending on the property, the price you'll get for it when you put it on market for an owner occupant is very different than for an investor, right? Correct. And I would say all of them pretty much went to owner occupants because at the time the owner occupants were paying the most for the assets. So little by little, we sold them off. That benefited us from tax strategies. So if we sold a couple properties a year and had gains, our depreciation from the multifamily offset those gains each year. So we actually haven't had to pay any gains taxes on sale of any of our 11 rentals so far. We've essentially kicked that tax can down the road. So that little by little benefited us because we didn't make a huge profit in one year that we then had to offset or pay taxes on. So number one piece of advice, sell little by little, if applicable to your portfolio, what other advice do you have? Our last property that we are exiting, we are actually selling on an owner finance note. As we want to diversify our portfolio more, instead of selling outright, one thing that we probably should have done with a couple more of the homes were to sell them on owner finance notes so that we can then make interest by being the lender to the buyer's and allow us to have a recurring monthly income without any of the maintenance or tax and insurance liabilities on those properties. So that's what we're doing with our last single family asset, but we probably should have done it with a little bit more had we known what we know now. The downside to that strategy is the lack of liquidity up front though, right? Correct. That wouldn't have been good for us at the very beginning because we needed the liquid funds. Today, we don't necessarily need the liquid funds. I just don't want to self-manage my rentals anymore. I don't want to deal with them. But I would love to have monthly income come in from a note and interest payments. That makes a lot of sense given your position currently. Eight deals under your belt, a couple of them full cycle. And I'll add one more thing that brings full circle, Slocum, what you talked about earlier. In the multifamily space, we may not have had to fund our own deals with emergency funds yet. But we definitely have been cash flow constrained due to all the reasons you mentioned earlier, interest rates, volatility in the marketplace. So that's our paycheck to some extent, right? As well as many of our investors. So Emily's point about, hey, just diversifying, doing some other types of investing that brings in more of a steady cash flow. It's not a bad thing for the portfolio as you start to diversify. Okay. Hypothetically speaking, I now have more money in my bank account than I've ever seen before because I've sold off most of my small portfolio. What do I do next? Well, the path we took was we were interested in being the asset managers for multifamily and having that capital made us attractive partners because we could contribute to the earnest money. We could put our own investment into our own deal, some skin in the game. And we were willing to do the asset management work because we had previously been doing 
the real estate investing work with single families. And that creates a very lucrative cash flow stream. The deal sponsors for multifamily have three different streams of income. And one of those streams is monthly. We get paid a monthly asset management fee. So if you're willing to do the work and to lead the multifamily group purchases, it is a very lucrative monthly income stream. Looking back on how you all started in syndication, what do you wish you had done differently? I think the only redo that we talk about is the multifamily game is very relationship-based. You're using a lot of investor funds. You are also investing your own money into other people's deals. So we made a couple of investments as passive investors, limited partners in a few deals that, yes, we had an SEC compliant relationship with the sponsorship team. We knew who they were. But did we really know about their track record of success and what their total resume was all about and all that? We probably should ask more questions. When I look at our passive investment portfolio, we've had deals do great. We've had deals haven't done great. And it's usually tied to how much of a relationship we have and how well we know the sponsorship team. That's what I always look back on. On that note, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yes. Yes, we are. Awesome. What is the best ever book you've recently read? We recently read a book called The Banker's Code by George Antone. I read it first and I went to Adam and I said, Jim, you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That was kind of a decade defining book. Right. I went to him and I said, The Banker's Code is our decade defining book for this decade because it truly changed our mindset and our business strategy in terms of diversification into more notes, mortgages, with the mindset of becoming the bank and being the bank. And it has literally opened my mind to a whole new set of real estate investing opportunities that we can progress into. George Antone, an author still not on audible.com. You cannot get his <laughs> books on audible. I was saying ADHD earlier. I've listened to hundreds of books on audible, but George Antone is an author who's just not there. So I haven't gotten to that one yet because sitting down with a physical book is more of a struggle for me than for most. Yeah. What is your best ever way to give back? Over the past several years have been hugely involved with an organization called chair the love. It's a charitable organization that donates wheelchairs to folks in need of mobility. It's highly concentrated in Central and South America, Mexico, a lot of Hispanic countries. And essentially what we do, besides donate or invest in their charity, we also fly out and meet the wheelchairs in these small villages and help to acquaint the new wheelchair owner with their new form of mobility. We've been doing that for the past four years or so, and we absolutely love it. Nice. Specific to the assets you all have acquired, these eight commercial multifamilies, what is the biggest mistake you've made with them and the best ever lesson that's resulted from that? I would say with our very first property, we still actually sold it too early, probably. It was heavily affected by COVID. It was located right near an outdoor shopping mall, restaurants, retail, everything. So a lot higher percentage of those tenants were affected than at our other properties. So as soon as COVID kind of rebounded and prices kind of came back, we decided to sell because we were nervous about COVID 2.0. Would we have to go through this slump again? Even though the state and 
a lot of different organizations came in and helped with the rent, we decided to sell. And I think looking back, we sold too early. We made profits. The investors made profits. Everybody was happy. But had we waited another year, it would have been much more lucrative for everybody. I want to cut out some of the hindsight bias here. Emily, what was the conversation you were having when you decided to sell? What did continuing to hold the portfolio look like to you in the moment? It's an obvious answer now, but that's not fair. What were you thinking in the moment? In the moment, it's a matter of if we sell, we can hit our investor projections. So that's the decision you make because the future is unknown. So you were taking care of your people being frank. And especially when you consider how much of your tenant base is not only attracted to, but employed by the highly COVID impacted areas there, if you're able to hit your projections, I don't know, there are a lot of investors who wouldn't make that decision. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask, what is the other biggest mistake that you've made and the best ever lesson that resulted from that one? Oh, we're kind of perfectionists. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, there's all the homes that we've never bought that we're like, oh gosh, if we would have bought all those homes, we'd be on a yacht somewhere. Hmm. As we were getting into the industry and making offers, we lost out on a deal because we wouldn't go up by $15,000 and the deal was $9 million. So we were at 9.3 and the other guy was at 9.35. It was a matter of pennies in terms of the big picture and we didn't win. We came in second place. Our colleagues won the deal. They made millions of dollars. And our takeaway from that was that never again will we lose a property for $100,000 or less. If that means I'm going to win this property, I'm going to go up that 50 or that 100 and we're going to buy it. Now that is a true mistake from a perfectionist. (laughs) That's right. That qualifies. On that note, Adam, Emily, what is your best ever advice? I think that a lot of our success really stemmed from a very simple habit that we've been doing for over 10 years together, and that's tracking our financials. Every month we sit down, we look at our personal income statement, income and expenses, our balance sheet, our assets and our liabilities. And we look at our financial picture and we say, where do we need to invest more? Where do we need to pull back? How does our cash position look? Every month we take a strategic look at our finances. And I think that that has been a defining factor in our decision-making over the last 10 years and our risk factor. Because when you see that the funds are there and they can be invested, I think you're more inclined to take the action. Last question, where can people get in touch with you? They can log into www.aemultifamily.com. That link is in the show notes. Emily, Adam, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this episode, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend you know we can add value to through our conversation today. Thank you and have a best ever day. Thank you, best ever. Thank you, Slocum. Appreciate it. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and Best Ever content? Well, if so... 
Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.